When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail. Had to Welcome to another episode of the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins coming to you from the mighty MCG just after India have wrapped up a big test win to go 2-1 up in the series. We'll be looking back at that win today and also uh, we've got our 2018 wrap it's uh, New Year's Eve by the time this gets into your ear holes or thereafter so you might be in the first days of 2019 if so, Happy New Year, you're in the future <laughs> can you bring me back some cool sneakers we like to do a little look back on our end of year shows, do our best and worsts of 2018 so that'll come up in the second half but in the first half something that contained some of the bests and worsts of 2018 I suppose, the way in which India won a test match and Australia lost a test match at the MCG yeah, g'day Jeff. I love the way that India celebrated today's test win. They they retained the Border Gavaskar Trophy and they engaged with their fans in the Brat Army and the Swami Army and, and and that was wonderful. They didn't do it. They didn't go over the top. This is all about winning a series in Australia, not about retaining the trophy. I think they would have safely expected that coming here with such a weakened Australian side. But to win next week in Sydney to stick the landing, that would be massive. The first Indian team to do so, and, and you can see how much that means to Virat Kohli, even more than the trophy. Yeah, it was different. You know, twenty ten eleven with the English. Side here retaining the ashes at the MCG it was sprinkler dances and celebrations that was it that's really what they came for and the series win was sort of an afterthought but this time it's all about that series win Uh, no one's ever done it no Indian side's ever done it so there's a frontier for them uh, to overtake and the way they went about it they were ruthless they were methodical their bowlers worked over Australia their batsmen just crushed Australia very very slowly there wasn't there wasn't any mercy in that performance yeah that was the old I'm going to do you slowly Paul Keating type victory for India uh, it could be said and, and there's heaps to talk about as far as Australia's batting not just in this test match which requires it's a forensic uh, diagnosis but also Is across there a 2018 to be made VK and PK together at last <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine the dinner party who, who they would uh, rack, uh, they'd probably get on quite well I reckon a couple of feisty characters yeah they'd, they'd, strong views they'd on the some world spirited conversation mm. I'm sure I think they get on really well <laughs> Um, I wonder if we can get into our podcast because, Jeff, we're doing the live show. Oh, yeah, we are. We, we spoke about this about two episodes ago and we promised to reveal more information and, and we can. We're going to settle up and have a live final word recording on the 17th of January at the Commercial Club Hotel, Nicholson Street, Fitzroy. So, yeah, so that's uh, in Melbourne. We're not doing the Sydney one because that was overly ambitious to try yeah. to get a venue on January <laughs> 2nd. But, you know, we'll look to, to doing one of those in future. We'll see how the, the first one goes and, and take it from there. Yeah, so... 
what you need to know for now is put it in your diary. Spaces will be limited, uh, so there will have to be some ticketing system which we're working out at the moment. But um, as soon as we know how that's going to work, we'll do another podcast and slip that into the feed, like slipping into your DMs. We'll, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll let you know exactly where you need to be for our little catch-up on the 17th of January. So that's in Fitzroy. It'll be 7 p.m. It's a fantastic pub. They're looking after us. They're friends of the final word in there at the commercial club. So I'm sure it'll be a great night. We'll have a special guest. We'll be Jeff and I. It'll, it'll all, be, uh, all be happening and, and ready to roll. So uh, put it in your diary, as I say, and, um, and keep an ear out for more information. Yeah, so keep an eye on your feed for that. Uh, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds as well. We're finally going to get around to setting up a Facebook page, which is a sort of a bit of internet admin that I've been putting off doing. It's like cleaning under the dishwasher or something. You don't really want to do it, but it's going to be out there. Uh, you know, we, we've got to we've we've got to respond to the demands of the people. Went to number four on the charts last week. It's a good number four. It's, number one's a bit gaudy, but mm. number four, you know, number four says we're still men of the people. I wouldn't mind going to number one. I must admit, but but all the same, it was gaudy, nice like to be recognised to to, uh, to 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 enter the charts with a bullet at number four <laughs> last week with our conversation with Harsha Bogle. So hopefully, if you keep listening, keep reviewing, um, keep rating, and oh, yeah. all those things that, help. That's an interesting one. We've had a lot of reviews come in the last couple of weeks, and that's been terrific. That's helping a lot. So yeah, jump on and, and hit the the stars and, and leave your thoughts on the episodes and how we're going, and um, also let us know what you want us to be talking about. Uh, but right now. Now we've got to talk about Melbourne. Because that we do. The narratives around this test match I found very interesting. The way things started off on Boxing Day and immediately it was it was like, oh, this Boxing Day, uh, this Melbourne pitch is awful again. Um, it's it's a disaster. It's it's an embarrassment because India were batting slowly through the first couple of days. And then as it turned out, um, the match moved on pretty quickly. Was that a result of the pitch getting better or mm. was that a result of Australia being not very good at cricket? Not a lot of volatility in the pitch. It did deteriorate to give some variable bounce on day four, especially. We obviously only saw 27 balls on day five, so you can't really um, judge it on that. But it wasn't looking good on, on morning one when balls were bouncing a couple of times before going through to Tim Payne. That, that's a terrible look on morning one of a test match, and mm. that was a consistent theme throughout the course of the day. Tim Payne actually said to us today at the press conference that he would have bowled first had he won the toss. That would have been... Uh, deeply embarrassing for him. That would have been NASA insane times 100 from Brisbane back in 2002. So, I mean, that shows how deceptive the pitch was with the grass cover. Um, We always fall for it. We probably fell for it again. Tim Payne did on this occasion, but Coley had the the presence of mind to bat first in the same way, really, that Payne did the week before at Perth. Mm. You you bat first when it's hot in Australia. Uh, It paid dividends, and really they were playing to their comparative advantage, which is that they can bat for a long period of time. They, They have patience. They have such reserves of patience with Pajara and Coley and they were able to get through that day with only losing two wickets and again as Payne said today Australia were always playing catch up from that point yeah the incredible level of patience that it, it was it was um hard to absorb it was hard to understand what was happening at times given that you know Pajara and Coley just they, they just stayed out there they just batted and batted and batted and waited and waited and waited and eventually the runs came and when they eventually declared you know 443 in nearly two full days of batting you felt like they were light for runs because they'd Mm. been going along so slowly but um but they'd been watching that that pitch deteriorate there were a couple of balls on day two that 
flew over Payne from a full length. You know, mm-hmm. Mitchell Stark had one absolutely take off. And basically, uh, I think that batting pair looked at that surface and said, well, this is going to fall to pieces and we've got more than enough. And as it turned out, well, they could have declared about a session earlier. Yeah, it never really, as you say, didn't fall to pieces as much as that it did give that occasional uh, glimmer that it might at the end. Mm. And, and yet yeah, they made 443 before declaring. At the time, we were like, well, they may have made 553 or more had they batted even at the same run rate as England did last year in, in, in their first innings, which seemed to go on forever. But um, it wasn't that kind of innings. They never really went up the gears. They never really had to. Um, they were able to drive the Australians into the dirt, to borrow the cliche, for the better part of two days. They were able to exhaust them in the field. And, you know, that does play a role when Australia come out to bat. They didn't lose wickets on that second evening, but it, it was a tired performance on, on morning three. But not to sort of... Um, not to brush over the performance with the ball of Patrick Cummins in the first innings, uh, took three wickets, but it was the the way that he did it on the first day. The Crickviz data at the time showed that he never dropped in his pace the whole way through the day. Um, he always stayed above that. I think his average was 143 kilometres on the day, charging in a 37-degree heat on a pitch, giving him absolutely nothing. Um, you just can't break down that machine. He, he's the, I, th- I think I wrote during the week, he's the man for all seasons, but all climates as well. Like, mm. No matter where you, you put him, whether it's Chittagong in Bangladesh when he was the, the sole fast bowler last year. Johannesburg this year after everything that happened in Cape Town. Even Ranchi when he first came back into the Australian side for his first test in five and a half years. It's as though the higher the degree of difficulty in terms of the conditions, the better Pat Cummins uh, or the, the, the bigger contribution Pat Cummins makes to the test match. And a pretty dead pitch in Ranchi where he was bowling quick bounces and he got wickets with the short ball in the first innings here as well. Not necessarily getting huge bounce out of it, but, uh, but more fooling the batsman into thinking it would bounce higher mm. than it did. He had a, a couple of times with batsmen ducking and then realising the ball wasn't quite getting up and fending away. I would hate to face him, not, only, not, not least the fact that he's so quick, but it's the rib delivery. There, there's almost no way out. And the way he follows you with it, because of the, the natural angle he gets being a right-arm bowler hitting the seam, um, banging it in short. Mm. As we saw, a couple of balls hit Indian batsmen on the head, but many hit them across the torso. It, it's a... It's a line of attack which reaped dividends in the second innings, but uh, yeah, imagine the sort of, um, not just patience, but also guts it must take to face Pat Cummins at that pace. Well, it's difficult. You're, you're distracted by his eyelashes, you know, watching the <laughs> wrist position properly and, you know, the, the way the ball springs out of the deck at you. It's incredibly difficult to concentrate. Um, but, yeah, he, as you say, he, he did his shift with, uh, with the ball and then suddenly he was basically about to go out there batting. He came off, patted up as the night watchman um, and would have been put in, had a wicket fall and it didn't but then he was out there just after lunch on the third day because the wickets kept going down in that Australian first inning he is too good to be the night watchman so traditionally the night watchman is a wicket that you don't value and that's why Nathan Lyon has has had that role I I think Cummins has not graduated to night watchman he's a better batsman than he's ever been I went through the numbers last night and we'll come to this later of course when we talk about his fantastic second innings half century but the volume of balls that he soaks up um, when, when, when the going is tough as it often is for the Australian batting lineup at the moment. You don't want to risk him going in five minutes to stumps with an opposition bowling lineup with their tail up. Nathan Lyon's a far more appropriate person, especially mm. given that he's been doing it for the better part of eight years. Yeah, it was a strange one. It's the sort of thing where if Cummins is there on the next morning after being night watchman, he's the kind of guy who could make 100 at number yeah, four. He probably will um, one day. <laughs> maybe one day, but if, if they keep using him for it. But as you say, a bit of a waste. But uh, a waste was Australia's first innings with the bat because, you know, you know they didn't get to 150. They were... Um, or got just past. They crawled over, yeah. Um, and and everybody got a start. Everybody faced 
what, 30-odd balls in the 32 balls. I could not believe this when I went back and looked at it at the end. Every Australian top six player, top eight player, faced 32 balls. But let's focus on the top six because I'm not going to level a, a single bit of blame towards Payne and Cummins who yet again had to do the rescue mission. They, the top six all faced 32 balls uh, and they're all out by their, by their 60-second delivery. At least 32. We should clarify that in each. No, they didn't. Exactly no. 32, which would no, be no. amazing if they had. But no, that, that was how many it was when Kawaja faced. But, yeah. I mean, Harris, 35. Yeah. Finch, 36. Head, 48. Sean Marsh, 61. Mm. And Mitchell Marsh, 36. So they were grouped together quite nicely. And what I, what I liked with that was that Steve Smith always talks about his first 30 balls. Uh, you know, interviewing him about batting, um, batting on several occasions, he, he talks about if he can face 30 balls, he's good to go. That's his day set. Mm. And, and more often than not, he goes on and makes a big score. And the, and the data... Um, uh, the, the data spells that out. He averages 60, 86 rather, 86 after facing 30 balls in a test innings. Now, I'm not saying this batting lineup is Steve Smith, but um, on average, the top six Australian batsmen face 16 balls after reaching 30 deliveries um, in the first innings. So it wasn't so much a collapse, it was, the, it was slow motion, it was it the was, anti-collapse. It was erosion. It was erosion. It, and- it was a, a sandy um, dune down at uh, you know, Phillip <laughs> Island or something, slowly being eaten away by the sea. And what, what does that tell you though? What do we learn from that? It's like not that they can't match it at this level. They weren't getting run through. It's it's that they didn't have the capacity above the shoulders. I, I felt the, the concentration that we saw from Pajara and Coley just didn't seem to be there. The shot selection after they were set, which is you know often when batsmen are judged harshest, it's, it's when they throw away a start because they all know how hard it is to get in. Per that Smith comment before, yeah. When when they do to get out the way that um, that Aaron Finch or, or or Marcus Harris did, which in differing ways wasn't overly uh, good to look at, or, or Mitchell Marsh in the second innings, which we haven't really talked about the second dig yet, but I'm sure we will, or um, Travis Head, well, uh, the I, way I the think, shot he played. I think you can put the second innings with the first. They're basically yeah. the same. There were a few more runs scored in the second innings, but essentially it was the same in that you had a lot of starts, you had a lot mm. of sort of halfway decent scores, but nobody got to a 50 until yeah, companion Cummins, pieces, until Cummins did so. So you've got a 33, yeah. 44, 34, 26, you know, all of these kind of getting going sort of uh, innings being played but not able to actually do anything with it. And again, pe- the way people got out in the second innings, Travis Head in that second innings, Mitchell Marsh, you know, playing these big shots, uh, not moving their feet properly, trying to slap over the field or through it when y- you've just been given an exhibition of the virtue of patience. Of course, Pajara and Coley are better players than anybody in the Australian lineup currently, but you can still try to emulate the best in trying to achieve success. Yeah, and... And the small caveat I put on that is that the getting out early thing I'm really interested in. So Pajara had a terrible run in county cricket before the first test this year uh, between India and England, and they dropped him. He was in bad nick because he's susceptible as anyone to a bad run of form, as was Coley in that same country four years ago in 2014. He couldn't hit the ball off the square, was edging off to, to Jimmy Anderson time and time again. The, mm. the, the point being here is, is that this isn't necessarily a group of Australian batsmen out of form. I mean, that, that would be the wrong way to interpret it because they aren't. They aren't falling immediately. It, they are getting themselves in, which is only why... They're making bad decisions, and that's fundamentally yeah, it. They're, that's they're right. seeing deliveries and, and making poor decisions. Yeah, so. it makes it look that much worse, doesn't it? Especially look at that Travis Head dismissal in the first dig where, I mean, he'd be best to answer why he was trying to pop Jasbit Boomer over Long On or maybe Cow Corner around the wicket, tailing it back towards him. Like The risk profile on that shot, 
and that delivery is so high. Um, why is someone who's got such a solid defensive game, or at least what's what we've seen so far in his international career, certainly in the second innings at Dubai when he batted for about five hours, what what leads towards him making that kind of bad decision? That's what I'm kind of more interested in than, yeah. than the technical side, if you know I, what I mean. I like the, the, the formulation as risk profile. Yeah. It's like, what's the investment equivalent? It's putting <laughs> putting your life savings in motorised eskies. You know? <laughs> I think these are really going to take off. Um, <laughs> but you mentioned- Where can I get some shares in that? I've made some dreadful investments over the years. If you had said to me a few years ago, motorised eskies, I would have said, where do I sign? I want to get in on the ground floor. Oh, I invested 10 grand in T-shirts one night when I was on the drink. Don't do it. That's a bad idea. I don't think I've ever had 10 grand to invest in T-shirts. It was a bad idea. I mean, when I say that, I mean, I have purchased T-shirts before, but that was to wear. Yeah, I wasn't very well thought through. So you mentioned Jasper Boomerang. This, this match isn't really the story of batting. It's the story of bowling. And uh, Boomerang... God, the way he went about things in the first inning, six for thirty-three, gorgeous display. Oh. We, we've talked about his, uh, you know, unorthodox technique, and so is everybody. It's getting a little bit tired now. Yes, he runs up slowly and has a sort of slingshot arm action and gets a lot of speed, but his accuracy, his persistence, his constant sense of threat—it just never goes away. He's such a clever bowler for every reason that you state there, but it just feels like he's, and, and Brett Coley says this too, he, he's always thinking about the next wicket. He isn't, none of this is by chance, it's by choice. So the way that he set up Sean Marsh in the first innings, that unbelievable slow ball, uh, only comparable to Steve Harmison, to Michael Clark in the 2005 Ashes as a, a modern reference point, a, a, a 2020 slow ball that he bowls constantly in the IPL. But mm. to have the bravado to run in and bowl uh, that the, the last ball before lunch. The fact that, as uh, Ben Jones, who we had on the show last week, worked out that every ball in the over was 140 clicks, except for the one mm. that dri- that dropped to 111 KPH. And, you know, that's the sort of... That, I mean, Mitch, Sean Marsh played the shot several times before he, before it arrived at him. It was, yep. a, it was the perfect bamboozlement. And, again, that, that uh, it takes a lot of planning to pull something like that off at the top level, and that's why I love him. But aside from the speed, it was also the, the line and length. You know, Sean Marsh is a decent lever of the ball most times and mm. he likes leaving he sort of gets into a rhythm of just if it's on this certain line you just leave it you leave it you leave it and so five balls outside off stump on a length near his off stump near enough to make him leave but feel like it was a good leave a well-judged leave and he was just in that rhythm and then sixth ball of that over as you say just sort of floating and plopping onto his foot um, even if he'd had the bat on the right line it would have gone underneath it probably so extraordinary piece of skill not just the bravado but to be able to do it after not bowling slower balls all yep. day to l- nail it the first time you've attempted it instead of moonballing it down leg side or something yeah, it's a really good point because in T20 or, or 50 over cricket, you, you're bowling a lot of slow balls, you're in the groove. But to, to nail that first time of asking and picking up Sean Marsh on, on the cusp of lunch in the first innings was everything you needed to see about the way this bloke's bowling. Six for 33. Um, when he was walking off the field, you could see the respect of Rat Coley and the love he has for him. He talks about him all the time. But the way he doffed his cap to him as he walked mm-hmm. off the field, it was like, no, no, this is not about India. This is about Jasbir Boomerang. And, and the way that Isha Sharma and Muhammad Shami, I took a photo of them all walking off together and they were so elated for him. Like this isn't a side of individuals. You can see how united they are as a trio. They know that it's a rising tide lifts all boats type situation. And the way they've bowled as a collective this year, the stats bear it out, doesn't they? I think all three of them have over 40 wickets for the calendar year. Yeah, a remarkable return. Together all up. Boomer's got, right. got 48 in nine tests so far. Um, so, yeah, very nearly hit that 50 and nine that Ravi Ashwin mm-hmm. has for India, which is the, the fastest to 50 wickets. Um, and he's also just a lovely fellow. He's, he's very, very uh, generous at Nathan Lyon in the press conference 
response for saying, he hasn't even said anything mean to me out in the <laughs> middle. He sort of sounded surprised. <laughs> um, but then you sort of had the, you know, the dreamboat fast bowler over the other side, Pat Cummins coming in after Australia had been bowled out, went by all rights, he should have been just exhausted. He'd, he'd bowled for two days, he'd batted for an hour or so, had the tea break off and then, you know, came back with the ball. And suddenly four for two he took in 19 deliveries at one put at one point, knocked over uh, India's big trio, Rahane, Kohli, Pajara, got them all. Pajara and Kohli have never been dismissed for a duck in the mm. same innings by one bowler before. Um, had them caught at leg gully, which was curious, but he had the field set for it and, and was bowling at the body, that sort of aggressive line that you were talking about. Yeah, that's right. And I think we were all exhausted when India decided to bat a second time. I, I thought they were going to enforce the follow-on, and we won't worry about debating the virtues of that now because all's well that ends well. But when it was raining this morning, the thought did cross my mind. Um, but no, the, the, the follow-on with 292 ahead, I thought they might try and drive Australia's nose into it and run them out again and, 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 knock, and finish that test match well inside four days but batting again we're like well this could have the all the hallmarks of a boring third innings declaration batting we see it so often that's the, the least competitive test cricket there is when everybody knows the declaration's coming it's two for 170 odd and there's no real intent the, the scoreboard's ticking over at 4.5 or 5 and over and we're just sitting around um, amusing ourselves but this was anything but Pat Cummins ensured that that third evening was it was most exciting. It's a shame that it counted for so little given the collapse, well not the collapse but what we were calling the anti-collapse earlier in the day but um, six of the first seven wickets, nearly seven of the first eight and um, when they went upstairs for a court behind um, I think the first ball he bowled after taking his six and at that point I sprinted around to the MCC and took a photo on the wall of, of Arthur Maley's nine for 121 because of course in the MCC they have the best figures and, and the best score made by an Australian and a visiting batsman and bowler respectively those four yep. marks there. We saw Alistair Cook um, uh, overtake Viv Richards last year with his unbeaten 244. Um, Arthur Maley took 9 for 121 here in 1921. And I thought to myself, gee whiz, if he's got 6 out of 7, he may very well take 9 for far fewer than 121 and, and get his name up on that board. When you consider that it's the better part of 100 years since Maley had that return, I thought we're up for some serious history. Mm-hmm. And then Josh Hazelwood went and ruined it. Hazelwood gets a wicket next day. He always does, to be honest. Always and, does. And then, and then of course, uh, Virat Kohli waved him in. But that excited me, but for a moment. I bet Josh Hazelwood double dips in the tomato sauce as well. <laughs> ruin it for everyone, Josh. Thought we had something. Well, he almost had a hat trick as well, Pat Cummins, because mm. of course he, he knocked over. Oh yeah, he knocked over uh, Coley and then Rahane from the first ball of the next over, and then he had Rohit Sharma play a pull shot to a short ball and they still had that leg gully in position and it went about a metre past Marcus Harris at leg gully. It was not even that. Like I was right, the angle I was watching from at the time was right in that gap and again had the camera on it so I could see what was happening and I mean if it was a metre, that's being generous, it was he was that close to a test hat trick in, you know, not the most competitive circumstances perhaps but it was one of those test matches for, for Cummins and, and a year of 2018 where it almost deserved to be capped with something personal like that a hat trick would have been the right kind of reward the right cherry on top it wasn't to be I'm sure he'll take one though he, he feels like the sort of bowler who one day like a Trent Bolt once he gets moving he can really motor through the tail so India declared at uh, 8 for 106 which would not normally be a very good score but you know it's at the point it's like at a wedding when the food's been out for ages and so you're just sort of mixing different cakes in together and <laughs> pouring stuff on top of each other and nobody's really bothering to finish their plates they're like oh we've got heaps of wickets it doesn't matter yeah, dipping the sausages in the dal or something like that yeah. <laughs> in the champagne yeah. sausage on the side of the champagne glass it's an Australian cocktail goes better together <laughs>
Well, they did have a litre 292 plus 100 and what was that? Yeah. Plus the so 100. 399 in. 399. 400 to win. Right. Sorry, okay. 3.98 in front by the time the declaration came. I like that from Coley, by the way, because yeah. you would no, 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 no one really declares without a four in front of it in yeah. terms of the lead. I like that he went, you know what? We've it got was, plenty with 398. It was because the wicket fell out. I think he wanted the 400, but he didn't want Ishant um, and, and Boomer to go out and face the bowling in case they broke a finger or something. It's quite a, that's probably a far better theory than the one I was So when, <laughs> when Jadeja got out, he was like, that's Advancing. it. Jadeja yeah. was trying to hit a couple of sixes, so they were, they were going for past 400. Sure. But yeah. it'd be nice if it was true. Mm. You know, oh, Let's just say it was I prefer true. my version of events, Huge but yours is true. far more likely. Huge if true. And then as we say, the same sort of thing happens, the same sliding away... Uh, a few pretty poor shots from the Australian top order, and then it, it, they look—you know—they were immoral to be bowled out um, by the end of day four. It was obviously going to happen, and then uh, Pat Cummins said, "No, I don't think so." Yeah, let, let's go through the, the top order dismissals. I think they're worth interrogating. So, in the first innings, Finch and Harris, in different ways, could say they were unlucky, and, and in a way, Harris might be able to say um, that he was again being caught at short leg. But I tell you what, Finch can't on three. He'd never played a late cut before, and as many people replied on Twitter, he may never play a late cut again in Test cricket. He may not get the chance to. Mm. So straight into the hands of, of Coley at second slip, it just looked absolutely as ugly as Test match cricket can be for an opener. And I feel for him. We all do, of course. Aaron Finch is in the side, not just because he's a, a fine white ball opener, and he made significant strides in red ball cricket down the list for Victoria and Surrey in the last couple of years, but because he's a, a player of real character and, and leadership skills, which uh, have been so lacking, so sorely lacking uh, in this Australian side, as we saw what happened in Cape Town earlier in the year. So he had more to give than that, and it's a shame that it looks at this stage on the available evidence that in Australia, at least, with the ball moving around a bit, and certainly in England, he'll be a liability at the top of the order. Well, I, I just can't imagine how anyone could look at at England next year and say, you know, the first test is at Edgebaston. Um, who do you want lining up against Jimmy Anderson in Birmingham on possibly a, you know, an overcast, cloudy day and a slightly green wicket? Uh, do you want Aaron Finch and Marcus Harris opening the bat? Yeah, well, you, I wouldn't mind. I, I feel like Harris he probably has the game for it based on what we saw in Perth, but. Yeah, look, I, I I want to believe with Finch, but I but I'm you know I think from each week that passes, it's less likely. Even Tim Payne today kind of hinted at the shuffle down the middle order is possible. He, he didn't want to be drawn on it, which says to me that it's more likely than not that Kawaja will be elevated to the top of yeah, the list. He's got they, they a fantastic a, record as an opener, and I'll do that, Dosi Doe. There's no replacement opener in the squad, so they've named Manus Labuschagne to come yeah. into the squad. The only player he can re- legitimately replace is Mitchell Marsh, which means it has to be a Kawaja open and, and Finch down if they want to get him out of that spot. Yeah, and before we get to Marsh's dismissal, Kawaja got a good one. Sure, Marsh looked really good, but was unlucky. Yeah. But at the end of the day, Sean Marsh averages 18 um, since the Sandpaper Gate, um, as Bryden Coverdale um, calculated yesterday. And as a senior player, you, he needed to step up, not average 18 through that period of time. So even though he was unlucky, that ball that all, almost always would be given that out on the field and you wouldn't review and it wouldn't be given out on review, um, he had to walk off. Travis Head. Travis Head um, was another one where played he was, on. Oh, yeah, uh, but he was absolutely um, liable for that. He didn't move his feet at all. Could he, not agree more. He got a yep. wide ball and he absolutely slogged at it. He just stood where he was and it was Ishan Sharma bowling three feet outside off stump and he had a huge go at it inside edge onto the stumps. That's not unlucky. That's a shit shot. Yeah, Simon Kadich said this on the SEN commentary. He said that um, with Travis Head, he, he threw his hands at, at a couple of balls uh, in Perth where we were last week. Perth down to third man, uh, and and he suffered the same fate here. And, and you just can't um, you just can't get away with that at the top level. You're going to be undone more often than not. We already talked about his first innings dismissal. Mitchell Marsh, just want to talk about him for a minute. So 
I admired him so much for the way he bowled on day one and on day two. I think that the way that he came in and did the perfect dried up um, fifth bowler job, he was the only Australian bowler to go for fewer than two runs and over. He was getting booed consistently by the, the Melbourne crowd because he was picked ahead of a Victorian. That drew plenty of headlines, and they were clearly pretty angry too. David Saker, the bowling coach, you know, was asked about it, and Mitch Marsh, it affected him. Can I ask you about that? I, yeah. I don't know if that necessarily stacks up. It's not like Peter Hanscom's a household name. It's not like Victorians are really going to care that much about who Peter Hanscom is. I think it's just that in general people are so frustrated with the Marsh selections that it may not have mattered where it was. It, it, may, yeah. it, it may have just been the fact that he was brought back into the side and people are sick of it and they can't direct their frustration at the selectors. And it's not Mitch Marsh's fault and he doesn't deserve to be attacked, but people can't boo the selectors. And so they're, they're making mm. their displeasure known through the player. A little from column A, a little from column B. I certainly agree that it's it's partially informed by this idea that the, the Marsh brothers have, have got the, the golden ticket and so on. Um, and, and, and sometimes when people make that case, and Christ, we've made it over the years when it comes to his older brother, um, you can build an argument around it. Perhaps a little bit less so for Mitch in different ways. He has been left out of the side several times and he's been brought in here on team balance. They wanted the fifth bowler. Yep. They knew they needed an extra seamer due to the conditions. That was the right decision on the horse for course thing. But yep. he needed to make runs to validate his position. So I felt so, you know, I felt as though he'd done the job with the ball. Hard yak at running in when people are booing you at the MCG on Boxing Day. That can't be easy to, to know that the people no. are not on your side. Um, and, and then only to come out and get out the way that he did. First inning's a ball that, look, I understand what he was trying to do, but um, he completely misread. He should have came forward trying to play across the line, and, and he was caught at slip. Second time around, um, an inexplicable dismissal, trying to smash Ravi Jadeja out of the attack. First of all, he wasn't going to succeed in that. He hit him for a six in the previous over, but it's not as though Verat's going to go, righto, um, Ravi, you know, have a blow. Yeah. I'm going to bring the seamers back on because we, we. I mean, that, that's because this guy's right on top of you. Yeah, it, it you just, don't look right on top when you're attacking a spinner like that. You look desperate. They would have felt as though they were more likely to get him out as a as a result of him playing that way. So again, Simon Caddick's a great barometer for these things. He he was perplexed by the whole episode. He immediately said that he doesn't think that. Um, either Mitchell Marshall or, or Aaron Finch will be playing in Sydney, which, well, it feels as though Marsh will be left out. Finch probably will play, but as we said, down the order. But again, that, that whole Mitch Marsh storyline, starting on Boxing Day as it is, it was such a, a disappointing end in that second innings because we know the way he can bat on his day. It just feels as though his day yep. is, is coming along uh, less frequently than it ever has before in his international career. It, it feels like his day lasted for one summer and, and maybe maybe that was it or maybe he needs to just disappear for a couple of years and make massive runs in the shield for a couple of years running in order to deserve a spot back in the team and, and really yeah. make, make an ironclad case for it. Because it is a decent sample size now, right? I mean, we, we've defended Mitchell Marsh quite a lot, you and I, and he's played 31 test matches, and Crickviz have calculated that he averages 19 against pace bowling. I mean, he has been sent in for some dirty work, late de- declaration runs and those sorts of things earlier in his career, um, but the sample size is too big now. There, there's no way of getting around the fact that um, the statistical base of evidence is that he hasn't got enough going in his favour to play test cricket at number six. Maybe in a world where Australia had a keeper batting in the top six and he could bat at seven, well, maybe, but number six, it doesn't feel like the right fit right now. Even there, you need you need runs from your seven and, um, you know, Mitch Marsh, I think, averages 25 with the bat and test cricket, Pat Cummins averages mm. 21. Um, it's not enough of a, a gap mm. from, from eight to six. Um, Pat Cummins did it again, made half century in the second inning, 63 by the time he was out on the fifth day and he, they batted a long time with uh, with Lyon particularly 
the um, the day got extended in order to get the overs in past 5.30. Then they took the extra half hour because Australia were eight wickets down. And he just kept defending through that time and just kept blocking it out and blocking it out and then playing the odd beautiful shot once he passed his 50, a gorgeous cover drive and then a straight drive down the ground um, and, and looked supreme. Yeah, the way Pat Cummins constructed that innings... When Tim Payne walked out with Pat Cummins, I just felt immediately immediately at ease, which is preposterous. I mean, I was sitting there thinking to myself, uh, I wanted to get to a fifth day for a host of reasons, not least the fact that, I mean, I hate Test cricket finishing at 6.30 at night on day four because we're here till midnight, selfish reasons, but all the same. Um, and the, the, the minute those two were together, it felt like this was possible. They'd get it to a fifth day with rain in the air as well. You know, who knows what could occur. But, um, you know, Cummins spent notoriously thousands of hours in the nets for five and a half years when he was out of the game. He did play some white ball cricket in that period of time, but you know he was largely on the rehab bench um, through various back ailments with his fast bowling in that, in that window, and he just batted and batted and batted, and it's paying off. He's it, it, it proof that you can develop the other side of your game if given the opportunity. Um, I, I don't really like to use his average as the best measure of his, his contribution. Either it's the ball's faced. You think a fast bowler built like him would be clobbering balls out of the ground uh, by demand. And, and he has done that in the BBL, as it happens. He has got that club. But he chooses to um, bunker down the way that we're talking about. We wish more players would in the top six. So many times now he's faced upwards of 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 balls. We saw it in Brisbane, Adelaide last year's Ashes series, Perth there as well. Durban this year, often forgotten about that test they won based on a on, on their first innings score, but he batted with Mitch Marsh at a crucial period, batted overnight on day one. Um, we saw it in Adelaide in, in, in the run chase a couple of weeks ago, Perth last week, Melbourne again in both innings here. Every time he gets an opportunity, he does not take it for granted, and that must be informed by all those years out of the game that he knows that he has to make every opportunity count, and I think that's just fantastic. And and for my part, I wrote last night that I think they're all the qualities of a leader. A lot of people on Twitter, Jeff, were saying Pat Cummins for PM. Well, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. He's age, at age 25, and well, he, I'm sure he isn't that interested in joining that sewer in Canberra at the moment. But I'll tell you what, um, if he um, saw fit to be the, want to be the captain of Australia one day, I see absolutely no reason why he wouldn't be a fantastic candidate, especially when Steve Smith's leadership credentials, well, well the jury's very much out on those. Mitchell Marsh can't guarantee a spot in the side. Josh Hazelwood's a fast bowler anyway, and Aaron Finch, the white ball captain, it's likely his test career won't be a long one either. Yeah, there's really not a lot of um, strong alternative candidates. You know, Usman Khawaja yeah. never seems to be in the conversation despite captain in Queensland for reasons that are that are unclear. Um, yeah, but I mean, just the fast bowler thing. One one test mm. match out of the 817 Australia have played all time have mm. been captained by a fast bowler when Rayleigh Moore captained in 1957, a one-off one off match, and, and um, Ian Johnson and Richie Benno Johnson, spinners. Yeah, the, the spinner, but you know, even that's going a long way back. Yeah, it's 50s a, a and 60s time. as well with Johnson and Benno. So it's this, we, we seem to have broken down all these old rules about cricket in the last 20 years, certainly since the T20 era. We, we are willing to open our minds up to all sorts of things. I think we should open our minds up to the idea that A, Pat Cummins could be a very, very good all-rounder one day if he keeps batting the way he is, and, and two, that he could be a captaining all-rounder, as, as was Kapil Devon, Imran Khan. And what did those two blokes do? They led their countries to World Cup wins. I, I should have put that on the shelf as well. They also led the uh, the world for wickets at one point or mm. another. Um, highest wicket takers in the world at one stage. Well, I won't fight you on it. 
Uh, Pat Cummins did fight Australia into a fifth day. Then the morning session was rained off, so there were brief thoughts that maybe the draw could be salvaged. It couldn't. didn't last very long. 25 balls, I think they got through. Uh, 27. 27. Yeah. Cummins and Lyon dismissed on that last day. But uh, at least they'd put up that little bit of fight. India closed out the win. They're up 2-1 going to Sydney, where, of course, we'll be next week. After the break, I think it's time to get into the looking back at 2018. You're on the final word. You are indeed on the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, brought to you, as it often is, by Cookaburra Cricket. If it ain't Cooker, Jeff, it ain't cricket. And if you are um, thinking about um, who you may want to buy a bat from or maybe you want to buy a ball from, having got a, a gift voucher or something like that in the Christmas period, I can recommend nothing better than, than a Kookaburra cricket ball. People sometimes give them grief, but growing up, I loved my new Kookaburra cricket ball through the, through the peak of summer, and, I, and I'm sure you will as well. It's got a very nice smell. It's got a very soothing smell. Remember the two-piece Kookaburras, the Red King you'd get when you were, when you were coming through, uh, the junior ranks, and you could do an awful lot of damage with them. Um, what we want to talk to you about when it comes to Kookaburra today, Jeff, is uh, every week during the summer, the fact that you can win Kookaburra prizes, bats, gloves, and thigh pads. Every week, something is on offer. You just need to go to Kookaburra. Dot biz and sign up to the team. That's kookaburra.biz and you can win yourself a bat, pads, gloves, thigh pads, the works. And you can you can kit up like some of the, the most impressive kookaburra stars out there. Yeah, that's right. I, I like the fact that they have a bat called the Kahuna. Reminds me of, uh, is it, I can't remember which of the early Batman movies it is, but the, the, the Jim Carrey as the Riddler at one where he sort of drops a guy out of a window into a, a, a foaming river and then yells out, surfs up, big kahuna, <laughs> classic Jim Carrey line. So well, Lisa that, Healy's that, got that bat. Maybe she can say that when she clobbers another WBBL century. <laughs> surfs up, big kahuna. <laughs> Maybe Usman Khawaja could say it as well, Usman Khawaja with the kahuna. Tim Payne also uses that piece of wood. Then there's the ghost with um, Marcus Harris, Australia's incumbent opener. Nathan Lyon, who has got the best bat in the business at the moment. He's going just beautifully with the willow. And Nicole Bolton, another Australian opener in the women's side. She's had a fantastic summer as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Surge, Pete Hanscom, Mitch Stark, Sophie Molyneux all use that bit of equipment. I reckon if I had the Surge, I'd just call it Surge. I'd call my bat, oh, g'day, Surge. G'day, Surge. Sergio. Sergio, Serge Silvani, Surge the bat. (laughs) Or the Blaze. If you want to get blazed, do so with Glenn Maxwell, Rachel Haynes, or Josh Hazelwood. That'd be a fun (laughs) dinner party, wouldn't it? You have no idea how much I want to do precisely that (laughs) with Glenn Maxwell, Rachel Haynes, and Josh Hazelwood, who use the Blaze. Of course, Jeff, the final word are fantastically supported by Kookaburra. And if it isn't Cooker, it isn't Cricket. Is it isn't, is it ain't, is it ain't, if it ain't, if it is. Uh, All of those things. You're on the final word, and it is the end of 2018. Happy New Year to you, uh, or 2019, if that's where you're listening to this. And it's time for us to look back at our... Well, we, normally we do our bests and worsts, but we had a chat before this episode and we thought the worsts are pretty bloody obvious. We know what the worsts are and it's been a pretty negative year all round. So we're going to mostly concentrate on the bests. The, the, the South Africa sandpaper, blah, blah, obviously it's been a terrible time, particularly in Australia for cricket. Yeah, I feel as though uh, I'm like a minister in, in question time when asked a question. I'm referring back to Hansard when it comes to uh, the Johannesburg uh, podcast that we did on the final word mm. about Sandpaper Gate. If you want to know about that, well, you know where to find it. Likewise, the Culture Review, um, we recorded a, an episode about your book, Jeff, which almost directly fed into the, the findings of the 
culture of you. So anything that comes to Australia being an absolute shambles in 2018, off the field administratively or uh, to do with sandpaper, we can direct you there. We don't need to go through that all again. Um, they're not the only negatives in the game, though. We'll, we'll wash through a few of them here. I mean, in the UK where I live, the 100, that was a bit of a mess. Uh, I think still is. I think, still... I think they've largely got their act together in terms of getting the players on site. But, I mean, when that was announced, that was... that. It didn't feel good being a cricket person that day to think that the game in that country has diminished to such an extent that they needed to, they needed to uh, pull a stunt like that. I, I totally understand where they're coming from, but the execution, zero out of ten, and it took a long time to recover from that. Yeah, I reckon, just, this year. just saying, we're going to have a new format, but we don't know what it is, how it's going to work. We're making it up as we go along. We're giving contradictory information on a daily basis for <laughs> weeks on end. Oh, we've consulted the players about it. Uh, we've consulted three players about it. Three yeah. players. It, just, it was bizarre. The whole thing is bizarre. The, 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 the fresh strategic element, I'll never forget that, which was the temple over, may God, God, may God rest its soul, yeah. the temple over, of course, having uh, um, departed to heaven after about two weeks when they realised it was completely unpalatable. Yeah, the, the other ugly stuff that we had in, in South Africa with that sort of entrenched misogyny in cricket with you know crowds attacking uh, Candace Fells and David Warner's wife and, and sort of justifying it on the, on the basis that they didn't like David Warner as though that made it okay to attack other people who just happened to be randomly around him at the time. Yeah, and, and as it happens, we actually recorded a podcast about that as well when we were sitting in our Airbnb in Port Elizabeth before yeah. the second test match. We went into a, a lot of depth about that enduring problem in our sport. So if you want to hear more about that, do so. Um, there was the Al Jazeera documentary. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, uh, some some uh, some people with some very um, strong opinions at the time uh, were willing to throw a lot of people in the dock, but the evidence amounted to nothing, uh, and and some players' reputations were were damaged significantly in the process. I I just wish these things were better fact-checked, and I just wish that people were who were conducting these investigations had a better understanding of the way cricket works, because so often, as it was last year in Perth, about that alleged sting that was going to happen in that test match, it, it, it feels as though the, the story is pre-written, the headline is pre-written, and then the evidence is, is, is assembled after the fact to try, and, to try and justify it, but on this case, it wasn't so. Yeah, and there's the ongoing negative that we've talked about uh, quite a bit before of just the way that uh, cricket nations outside the top few uh, treated the uh, the ten team World Cup being reconfirmed for 2023 as though they're just going to proceed with this model, which just isn't going to work for for expanding the game and also the future tours program, the uh, the Test Championship as it goes forward. Australia playing very little cricket against uh, anyone outside the top few in that period of time. Yeah, we know that through to 2023 in the future tours programs that captures both um, or, or T20 one day and Test cricket, and, and it captures the one day championship and the Test Championship that Australia will not host. Bank Bangladesh in a bilateral series, which will mean we go two full decades without Bangladesh playing a bilateral series in Australia. It's absolutely shameful. And that's after one was cancelled this year. That was one of, oh. one of the worst, one of the lowlights of 2018. Too right. We're you- saying, oh, sorry, it costs too much for Bangladesh to tour. Oh. We've just signed a billion dollar rights deal, but it's too expensive to host Bangladesh for a couple of tests. The usual absolute nonsense there when it comes to scheduling. Uh, I also wanted to touch on the pitches and, and some of the umpiring at the Women's World T20. Very, very positive event, but um, the Women's World T20 at, at the pointy end the pitches were a mess and that's the sort of thing we all know that, uh, all those of us that cover women's cricket that the most important element uh, the most important component part is the 22 yards in the middle um, you need to get that right and when you don't you get semi-finals like we had at the Women's World T20 but on to the good stuff greatest moments of the year let's let's go right back to the start of the year for mine 
Sean Marsh and Mitchell Marsh nearly running each other out at the SCG while trying to celebrate 100, stopping for a mid-pitch hug before remembering that they had to complete the run. Uh. And the footage of the team balcony with every Australian player pissing themselves laughing, except except for Steve Smith, who is, like, mortally offended. He's yelling at them. (laughs) He's He's... he hates getting out so much that someone else getting out is almost as painful. Yeah, that's right. And, and to think that when they registered those two tons, that was 100 number two and number three for Australia in 2018. There was only one other. They were, that was on January 8. There was one other. That was Usman Khawaja in Dubai. To think that Australia went all bar eight days of the year, um, or two if you want to just include the playing days without having a, a person, a, a man rather, make 100 in test cricket is, is quite, quite astonishing. But um, yes, it was, a, it, was a, it was a good crack at the time. We all had a good laugh uh, yeah. on, on, on a pretty on a, on a stinking hot day in in, uh, in January. It all gave us something to write about. Yeah, fifty odd degree day in in January, and we thought, oh, this is going to be a cheerful year. Um, that, that draw in Dubai though was one of the other obvious highlights. One, literally, one of the great performances ever in Test cricket. No matter what happens in Usman Khawaja's career, no one can take that away from him. Yeah, it was wonderful. We've we've talked about it before, but it was wonderful being part of it on the call at the time with you, Jeff, at the time, uh, and something that we will never forget. Another moment in the UAE um, was. Uh, New Zealand winning there. That was a real high point of 2018. New Zealand, after Australia lost 1-0, but easily probably should have lost 2-0, all things being equal. Um, New Zealand go over there and win 2-1 and and reinforce that uh, they are a a team on the serious improve. I I know we talked about this on the pod last week, but I wish um, Australia hosted them for four tests next year to recognise that. I'm sure they won't, but um, they've made serious strides of late. Well, I I think New Zealand as a whole are one of the highlights of the year for me, just the way they've gone about things. They've only played, what, six tests? I think it's six now, yep. And... If you look at teams of the year, you've got Williamson, Latham and BJ Watling at least who are, who are in a lot of these those teams or strong contenders. Um, Trent Bolt and Tim Southey are pretty strong contenders as well. You've got, despite having so few opportunities, the way that the Kiwis are consistently able to, uh, to play strong cricket, to be brilliant players to put performances on the board again and again um, and just keep impressing. It's, they make you feel good about the game. Yeah, well said. Uh, Women's World T20, um, to note that that standalone event, there was some concern that playing it in the Caribbean at probably the wrong time of year, it was a risky time of year when it came to uh, the climate there, but it held together. The crowds were fantastic, absolute proof of concept. I can't wait till the next standalone Women's World T20 in Australia in 2020. And also alongside that, what we've seen in the Women's Big Bash League so far this season, Jeff, hyperinflation of scores, um, the, the deeper pool of talent, um, it's on the up and up every season. We continually talk about it, but what a marvellous product they have there. Saw some amazing things in South Africa as far as the, the best of went. Um, A.B. de Villiers at Port Elizabeth, yeah. that hundred, the last hundred of his career. We didn't know that he was retiring at the time, but I think it was probably his best test hundred, uh, the conditions that it came in, the way the way the Australian bowling attack was just relentless that day and, and the way he resisted them and, and pushed South Africa out to a lead and eventually set them up to win that test. Kaiso Rabada, the way he bowled through that series as well. Port Elizabeth took 11 wickets, got back in the ball game in Cape Town. Uh, it was a massive factor in that test as well. Joe Berg, likewise, player of the series. Uh, I mean... We're very fortunate to have witnessed a bowler of that capacity at that stage of his career. Who knows whether he might fall victim to injury as so often fast bowlers at that age do, but um, this first chapter of his career has been so exciting and I think we've seen the best part of it so far. Related to South Africa, best things of 2018, Jim Maxwell... A, getting back on the road in South yep. Africa. Had a stroke a couple of years ago. Um, we didn't really know if he'd get back into the commentary game at all. Missed a whole home summer. Sort of came back into it um, the following home season a, a bit gingerly. 
But then he was back on tour in, in March and April in South Africa, called all four, four test matches with the SABC, and then back home in this home season, he's just brought up his 300th test match behind the mic at the Boxing Day test against India um, today on the day we're recording this. And what a beautiful thing that, that he was able to come back and, and notch that milestone. Yeah, it absolutely was. I reckon a couple of years ago, even he may have thought that that was a, a goal that might have been outside of his reach. But ticking over 300, I know Jim listens into this show. Uh, it's been wonderful working with him over the years. He's a truly great human being. Moving to England, two moments in the Midlands. Uh, the Edgebaston test between England and India to start that series was just about the best test match I've ever seen. Um, we talk about the best test. You don't know who's winning session by session. This was 20 minutes by 20 minutes. It was up and down the whole way through. Um, the defining performance of Sam Curran with the bat, dragging England back in. Um, Jimmy versus Virat Kohli, one of the great contests, a superb hundred from Virat Kohli in that, in that, in that, uh, first innings. And then the fifth morning, actually it was the fourth morning, but it felt like the fifth morning with um, a full edge baston. Incredible atmosphere um, and a reminder of the best of our cricket. Uh, also in the UK, I was very fortunate to be covering Alistair Cook's um, Farewell 100. Again, a, a moment where the ground truly erupted. I've, I've uh, never seen a, a standing ovation which lasted longer and, and one that could fit in both the positive and negative category depending on where you're listening. When England plundered 482 against Australia in a one-day international, we were so close to seeing 500 broken. They made, I think, 30 runs in the last five overs. They should have passed yeah. 500 Comfortably. Australia actually pulled them back in the last, <laughs> as bizarre as it sounds, in the last five overs. They tightened the screws. It was great to witness. And one last thing for me in that part of the world, being there for Ireland's first test match, um, I botched it and actually missed the first ball in the end. But being there in the lead up uh, to Ireland, finally making their bow as a full member ICC nation, Afghanistan didn't do quite as well as Ireland did. But for, for a moment there in that second Pakistan innings, it looked like they were going to pull off an upset, and that, that again, is, is reinforcing, Jeff, what you said before about the, the need for us to grow the game at every available opportunity and, and reinforcing why the 10-team the te- World Cup at 50 over levels is an absolute disgrace. And that's one thing we've got to look forward to at 2019 is Ireland playing Afghanistan in a test for the first time. I think that's in March. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's being played in, in India. I think it is that test match um, that, that's going to be that's going to be fantastic. That might be a New Year's resolution for me to try to get to that test. Yeah, I've got to say, every time Ireland play a test match now, you're gonna, I'm, I'm going to be keen to have a look. It was a wonderful week. They're a great team to deal with. And, uh, and, uh, and actually, if we're going to talk about positives, Ireland's women getting central contracts for the first time, um, they, they spoke strongly at the Women's World T20 about a major... Part of the reason they couldn't compete was they don't have contracts, and to their immense credit, the board responded to that, and now, as of this year, they'll be paid um, just as the men are, so well played to Cricket Island for getting their act together there. So, a pretty healthy list of positives, Jeff, in a year which I don't think we're going to look back on overly fondly due to what happened in, in South Africa in March, but I think that's not a bad list there. So, for next year... Do we do predictions? Do we do we do we dare? Yeah. Well, well, I reckon we should at least consider it on the basis that last year we predicted that it would be Pat Cummins and Kiso Rabada would take the world by storm and become mm-hmm. the best best cricketer on the planet. And we've just about got that right. They I mean, would they would collectively become the best. Yeah, cricketer. They, they would sort be, of Voltron they would be style. I think we said there'd be a competition for number one in the world. Okay. The, the, the 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 world championship belts would yep. would go to one of the two of them. And, and at different points through the year, yep. they've held it. I think Cummins might have it on right now after this week in Melbourne. And mm. I mean maybe. Jasbir Boomerah and Muhammad Abbas could be thrown in there as a, a four horsemen like tag team uh, world wrestling uh, quartet. The, the, the four of those fast bowlers have been just uh, immense. Well, as far as bests of 2018 go, those two that you mentioned, Boomerah and Muhammad Abbas, 
both just appeared in 2018 out mm. of nowhere and suddenly, you know, rocketed to 50, just about 50 wickets in, in nine tests each. They both nearly got there and didn't quite. Incredible stuff that they've did. Polars of this quality and this sort of unorthodox entry into the game. Yeah, he, he, he was picked out of a, his workplace to play first-class cricket. It's, yeah. a, it's a tremendous story. And, and, and uh, Boomer sort of ending up in the IPL almost as a, like a novelty bowler. It was this guy's got a bit of a weird action. He might be hard to pick. And then suddenly just dominating at that level. And then- It's hard to believe he didn't play a test match until this year. I mean, Brad Coley spoke at his presser earlier today about the fact that they, they took him to South Africa as a wild card. They didn't think he'd play. They thought, we'll, we'll, we'll just see how we go. We think he's a white ball bowler. But Coley's, in Coley's estimation, it was the work ethic he saw from him on the training track, which proved to him that he had the discipline to play test cricket. And he's been rewarded uh, times over with his contribution this year, without doubt, um, alongside Abbas, uh, the, the bowler that, that's come from nowhere and is, is now making a massive contribution. Any resolutions for the new year, Adam? You know what? Actually, I might make a prediction. I might make a prediction, and it's not a good one. I, I don't think Glenn Maxwell will play in the World Cup. I, I don't think Glenn Maxwell will play many more times for Australia, full stop. I think he's been KP'd. I, I've got nothing to bolster this argument in a way. I've got no leads or no info, but if he wasn't picked for Sydney this week, and if he's not considered one of Australia's best six batsmen right now... In, if, in the weakest in team the we've seen since probably World the Series 70s. cricket. Yeah, yeah. If, if, this, if the whole of the sandpaper bands can elapse and they've played all this test cricket, and we can get to the end of this summer... Let's, 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 you let's know, throw, you, if he didn't get you, there by the end of the Sri Lanka test, let's say. If we get to the end of the summer and he's not played a test match, I don't think he will play another one. You know and the, and, and the, the World Cup squad... But, I just reckon the World Cup squad is that... I, I can easily imagine a world where they say um, this is the time to, to move him on and they might think of him as more trouble than he's worth. I don't know. Hard to know for sure. But he's certainly not a flat pack, flat pack cricketer. He's certainly someone who speaks his mind and goes out and answers questions when they're asked to him. And, and maybe they don't want that sort of character in the side. It's hard, it's hard to really get a read on that. But, but it's bizarre where there, there's nothing you can pin it down on. You know, you talk about KP. and there, there were 50 incidents with KP where you could say, well, it's about this. It's about the thing where he was feeding tactics against his own team to the opposition. It's it's yeah. about you know twenty public statements that he made that were outrageous and offensive. There isn't anything like that with Glenn Maxwell. There's nothing where he's actually done anything wrong, which makes it all the more perplexing. But yeah. uh, uh, but you look at South it, Africa. He came over as a reserve batsman. He was a reserve batsman. Uh, the Ashes Test in Brisbane when yep. when Sean Marsh had a neck problem or whatever it was went back so, and made two eighty after being a reserve batsman. So at that time he was in the best seven or eight batsmen in the country as designated and admitted by the selectors and now with so many players gone and so many underperforming they're they're now basically saying he's not in the best 15 or however many they've gone through well well, that's right i mean they, they told him not to go to play county cricket in order to be ready for the australia a tour he wasn't taken on the australia a tour to india because he needed they thought he'd done enough to be ready for the uae well, they he told did, him he'd done he enough need to p- p- prove himself in that in those sorts of conditions they left him out of the uae and played manus labashain on spec without a huge amount of form to back him up uh, and now he's been overlooked for sydney as well look we could go round and round in circles on this but it's a gut feeling uh, of mine is that um, we're not going to see much of him at international level anymore, and I think it's just such a crying shame that's the case. It might be a selectorial resolution for the new year. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, in terms of resolutions, we, we sort of talked off air, Jeff, that we, we do have one, and, and it's been sort of came out of our podcast a couple of weeks ago. We got an amazing response to our discussion about the amount of advertising there is inside Cricket Australia venues at the moment, and I think, if anything, we can resolve to, to keep talking about that, and I don't want to turn this into 
for activism podcasts, but certainly we can continue to, to shine a light on what seems to be a growing problem here. Specifically in gambling advertising is what you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, I don't know if I said that correctly, but gambling advertising inside cricket grounds, which um, it seems and, to be and, at and a level on, we've never... On cricket products, on cricket channels, you know, uh, the online association, the way it pops yep. up in the telecast, um, it's, there's, there's, there's a relentless barrage of, uh, of advertising saying you should bet on the cricket and I tend to be of the opinion that if you want to bet on the cricket then fill your boots but you don't necessarily need to be reminded every 42 seconds to do it. Yeah and there's a distinction between those who, who broadcast the game and who promote the game and so on. I, look, you know, I can understand that, they've got their own commercial realities, it's their own world, it's their own businesses but cricket is a non-for-profit organisation um, it's publicly funded by virtue of the fact that they pay tax. I think there is, there is a different line that is drawn there and, I, and I'd hope to see a scenario where um, over time we can we can get off that addiction in the same way that um, cricket did with with tobacco sponsorship back in the nineties, and we have another resolution, Jeff, as well. Do we? Uh, we do. Uh, again, I, I don't know if you remember. We are going to try. Tell me, and I re- don't record the final word. Where we where we've fallen short, perhaps in twenty eighteen as a podcast, is yep. that we've we've had intense bursts of activity um, last summer, then during the South Africa series, and of course through this test series as well, but. And um, we've fallen off a bit. We haven't been able to um, quite master the technique of recording in two separate countries with me living principally in the UK and you in Australia. But given how much time we're going to be spending together in England across the Ashes and the World Cup, and, and, and they're not that many months in between, let's make a point of trying to record every week until the end of the 2019 Ashes. I reckon we can do it. That's more commitment than I've ever had in any long-term relationship. Um, so This is like a long-term relationship now. You're asking a Year lot of me. Year five of the final word. You're asking a lot of me. But uh, look, I'll try. That's all I can say. I'll do my best. We should also make a resolution to uh, to bring the audience into the pod a bit more. So if you want to email us, it's the final word at... Gmail. I can't remember the email address. I, I reckon it's no, Final Word Cricket. cricket. Final Word Cricket at gmail.com. There's going to be a Facebook page. Please leave a review as we said off I the top of the show. I think we're not going to make Twitter because we both have Twitter. We're so not going to do just, Twitter. You can find us on Twitter yeah, and talk to us. You can talk to us on Twitter individually. Collins, Adam and Jeff Lemon Sport. Facebook page, jump on board this week when we get around to starting it off. Keep an eye out for the live show. Review and rate on the podcast app or whatever it is. All these different ways you can work with us to yeah. make this show work better and but make it more viable. let us know what you want us to talk about uh, or you know, what you think we should be covering because Absolutely. You, you, can, you can help us. Help us help you and, uh, <laughs> and we, can, we can all be in this together. That's probably enough from us for today. We're going to be back after the Sydney test. Uh, We're going to be at the live show in Melbourne on the 17th of January. More information about that to come. And uh, we will speak to you about all things cricket and so forth in the new year, in 2019. Once we're recording there, no matter where you're listening to it, thanks for your company again today. This has been The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Happy New Year. I ain't breezing and I ain't George Benson. I ain't protected by the way I ain't fenced. And if my future questions my current senses, that'd be the same we've been doing for centuries. Sorry if I ran out to empty, wrote this so you know what I meant here. I had to go about.